I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 62. Before we get started, I'd like to apologise for an omission that I made last week. One of our stories was The Green Square by Donald V. S. Duncan, and I completely forgot to tell you that this story is from the Urban Green Man Anthology, which is published by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. My apologies for the omission. We are once again bringing you a single, longer piece of fiction today, So sit tight, hold on to those beverages, I've got mine. Let's listen to a story. The tale today is called Calliope, a steam romance, and it's written by Andrew J. McKiernan. Andrew is an author and illustrator from the central coast of New South Wales in Australia. First published in 2007, his stories have since been shortlisted for multiple Aurealis, Ditmar and Australian Shadows Awards, and reprinted in a number of years' best anthologies. Last year, When We Were Young, a collection of his short stories, won the 2014 AHWA Australia Shadows Awards for collected work. You can find out more about him by looking at andrewmckiernan.com. The story is narrated for us by a fellow called Kenny Park. Kenny narrated a story for us way back in May of 2014, and we're very glad to have him back with us today. Kenny is a video editor by trade, but having trained and worked as an actor, director and writer, he maintains it's all just storytelling. He's been involved with Starship Sofa since the early days of Tony and Kieran, filming their interview with the legendary Michael Moorcock in Paris, and he still does narrations and wee video intros when Tony can pin him down. You can have a look at his website, kennypark.com. So, here goes with Calliope, a Steam Romance, by Andrew J. McKiernan. (laughs) 
Her voice is of a host angelic, but fallen. Her every breath breeds melodious pains that tear at my soul, in ways both tender and cruel, and I weep with pain and joy to hear them. For, as surely as Eros struck Apollo and Daphne, I am so sorely wounded by her song. But be that barb of gold or lead? Ah, now therein lies the tale. I first saw her down at the quay, or, more rightly I should say, I heard her. I was returning from my place of work at the patents office on George Street, and was anxious to make the five o'clock ferry. My wife had invited guests for tea, and, as was my usual form, I was running late. As I rounded onto Alfred Street, I saw a big foremaster had pulled into dock between two steamers. Men were in her rigging, clambering up masts and tying sails to yard arms with agility and speed. Her cargo was being unloaded, and a stack of crates, trunks and tarpaulin-covered boxes were gathering on the dock. A number of carts were lined up along the street, their drivers anxious for the bark's best cargo. The steam horses that drew the carts were enormous machines, almost twice the size of a natural horse. They stamped the ground, iron hooves striking sparks from the cobbles and what seemed like bored frustration. I knew, having seen the blueprints, that this was but a mechanical twitching of internal gears and pushrods, a spasm of built-up torque, and not any sort of emotional reaction at all. Through the haze of steam venting from their nostrils, I could see that they stood four deep across the road, barring the way. Carefully, I made my way through, ducking under one magnificently polished beast and almost scalding my nape on the hot boiler of its belly. When I reached the wharf for the North Shore ferry, there was barely a line at the ticket booth. The ferry had not even docked. Frankly, I could not believe my luck. Luck is a most unusual occurrence for me, and rarely do I find myself in a situation where the worst is not the inevitable. So, to ensure my luck was real, I fumbled in my pocket. I pulled the first coin my fingers encountered and looked down at it. A penny. I stared out at the approaching ferry and at the green shore awaiting me just across the harbour. I would be home for tea, just as I'd promised, and I knew how happy that would make my wife. I stepped up to the line with a spring in my step, three from the booth and in plenty of time. I clutched the penny and thought of hot tea and scones and probably some cake. Oh yes, most definitely some cake. Two from the booth. I thought of the smile I would bring to my wife's face when I walked through the door. Maybe I would buy some flowers to brighten the table. The ferry was docking, its passengers stepping out across a plank and onto the wharf. From somewhere came a gentle melody, carried upon a breeze unto my ear. It came softly, and the tune, though unfamiliar, caught my attention. It was gay and uplifting, with a lively step that gave mind of parades and summer days. There was something of the seaside and of circuses in that tune, and of the joy of being young and full of life. One from the booth. I turned to discover the music's origin, and saw further down the quay a gathering had formed. In the centre of the crowd, rising just above their heads, I could discern a splash of red, a hint of sunlight glinting off polished brass, and a great wreath of steam rising into the air. With that billowing cloud the music rose in volume, stunning everybody, a bone-shaking sound that loosened the crowd. So loud I'm sure it was heard all the way up Macquarie Street, 
drowning out everything, like a hundred tuned train whistles played by a god. And, though there were no cathedral walls to echo that mellifluous song, the surrounding harbour was quite adequate in its acoustics. Every note was felt by the flesh, rising up through the wooden boards of the quay, entering through the feet, filling the soul. A low bass drone sent shivers up my spine, taking control of my legs, moving me inexorably closer to that euphonious epicentre. I thought not of the ferry, nor my wife across the harbour. I thought nothing of my promise to her, or of the guests who would be arriving. I thought nothing at all, as I walked across the quay, entranced by a song. I pushed my way through what remained of the crowd, heeding not their indignant vituperation. There were not so many now, and I could not understand how some, unaffected by the music, might feel the desire to leave. Such a thought was incomprehensible as I stepped into the front row and beheld the originator of that heavenly choir. Before me was a carriage, garish and red, ornamented along its wide panels with gold-leaf scrolls and fleur-de-lis. Across the side in large white letters was written Mackenzie's Universal Circus and Museum of the Bazaar. One side was open to the crowd, and I could see within an arrangement of polished brass pipes stretching up and out through the ceiling. In front of them, but within the carriage, were set two tiers of polished ivory and ebony keys. A calliope, I remembered. The instrument was called a calliope. At the keyboard, playing the music, sat the most beautiful woman I had ever encountered in my life. She wore a skirt of softest blue and a blouse of white merino. Her hair was dark, drawn up and back into a twist of curls that fell like a waterfall down her long neck, revealing ears as fine as porcelain. Her profile was as perfect a collection of curves as nature could produce. Face smooth and white as if powdered, lips and cheeks aglow with a touch of geranium or poppy, eyes hidden behind long, dark lashes. She did not turn her beautiful head or swerve from the playing of her instrument. Only her fingers and hands moved, running deft and sure from key to key. It was the most pleasing scene my mind had ever the fortune to behold. Then, as I stared, she parted her angelic lips and began to sing. Never could I have imagined a voice that might rise above the thunderous majesty of a steam organ, but rise it did, louder and louder, smoother than silk. It soared and swooped through the counterpoints her fingers coaxed from the keyboard. For a moment her voice would disappear, lost amongst the boisterous sounds of the organ, only to appear again, ascending portamento, her tremolo buzzing deep in my soul. There was, at some stage, a man who came to stand before me. I barely noticed his presence, bar the fact that he partly obscured my view. I would have stood there oblivious had he not rattled the red wooden box in a most annoying manner. Each time the box rattled, metal upon metal, the sound would intrude upon my pleasure. Every shake produced a clangorous cacophony of coins that perturbed my mind from the beauty of the calliope and its wondrous vocal accompaniment. With little thought but for removing this distraction, I reached into my pocket and withdrew a coin, barely looking as I placed it in the box. Then the man was gone, moving to the next person in the crowd. I'm sure that, just for a moment, I saw the player tilt her head towards me in acknowledgement and smile.
time stood still beneath that beatific face and the light that shone in her eyes. I don't know how long I stood, watching and listening, or how long she played and sang, but when she stopped, a curtain dropped across the side of the carriage, hiding her from view. A final gust of steam exhausted itself from the pipes with a high, piercing wheeze, and the crowd dispersed. I stood there, numbed by too many emotions. The joy of the music, its melody and rhythm, still lingered in my mind, but was giving way to a great sense of loss. I knew the music would fade, my memory of her dissolve, like badly developed heliotype. I saw a man, dressed in a suit of black, trimmed at collar and cuff with braid of gold in mock military fashion. He carried the red box as he moved towards the carriage. It was not until he had disappeared behind the calliope that I realised his connection and decided to follow. "'Excuse me, sir,' I said, finding him turning a series of valves jutting from a boiler tank fastened to the carriage's rear end. He looked up and scowled. "'I was wondering about the calliope player,' I said, "'and if it might be possible to know her name. "'I found her performance most gratifying "'and would like to thank her with a note.' "'The circus man stared for a moment, then laughed. "'So you want to send a note of thanks to our Callie, eh? "'Yes, I'm sure she'd value a note from you, kind sir.' "'He stood up from his task, wiping dirty hands on a rag, "'and tapped the side of the carriage with his fist. "'She works hard, our Callie.' Always appreciates a bit of appreciation, she does. He thrust out his right hand. I took it, shaking gently as his firm fist encompassed my smaller hand. My name's Mackenzie, he said. Why don't you come back tomorrow night, on me, and deliver your note in person? I'm sure Miss Callie would love to meet you. We'll be up at Moor Park the next three nights, and then we'll be moving on. Mackenzie released my hand and bent back to his task. I stood there, expecting Callie to exit the trailer at any moment. "'I don't think she'll be coming out too soon, sir,' Mackenzie said, intuiting my hesitation. "'I will tell her to expect you tomorrow night, though.' His tone was harder now, and when he didn't look up again, I took our conversation as over. I would return tomorrow night. I had, after all, been invited— and it would be impolite to refuse. Of course Miss Callie would like her admirers to deliver their thanks in person. It was only logical. I turned back towards the wharf and had only taken two steps when a horn blared. The ferry was already three-quarters of the way across the harbour. There wouldn't be another for almost an hour. And I'd donated my last penny to Mackenzie's Universal Circus and Museum of the Bazaar. There had long been talk of bridging the north and south sides of the harbour. Francis Greenway first proposed a bridge in 1815, but, despite some enthusiasm, work never commenced. It's an engineering feat I would have liked to have seen, a bridge of iron stretching from shore to shore, but Mr. Beach's pneumatic rail system proved so successful in New York City that the city of Sydney commissioned one also, and all talk of a harbour bridge was soon forgotten. Begun in 1888, the Pneumatic Cross Harbour Subway, or the Tube as it is commonly known, was a daring enterprise. Many died during its eight-year construction, but it was hailed internationally as a marvel of modern construction. I don't like it. I don't like the closeness, or the thought of so much water pressing down from above. I don't like the stale air, 
the smell of sweat and of lavender oil, applied so liberally by a well-to-do woman that it fills the cramped cars like a miasma. I don't like the feeling of being alternately blown and sucked along a sealed tube by enormous whirring fans at either end. What if the car didn't stop and ran into the fan? What if the fans were to stop while we were still in the tunnel? What if the tube were to spring a leak, releasing the pressure that gave us motion, letting in the harbour to drown or crush us under its weight? No, I do not like the tube at all. But I caught it home that afternoon and paid a farthing for the pleasure. When I arrived home late, my wife was, understandably, in a state of great agitation. I had not thought of an excuse for my lateness and stammered something about crowded streets and long lines. She huffed and puffed and I could tell she didn't believe a word. I knew she suspected me of having met the boys for a drink at the fortune of war. It was a plausible notion that I saw no reward in dispelling. My wife's guests were chatting in the drawing room. I made myself scarce, retiring to my study to avoid the prolonged tongue lashing I was most certainly due. Things would quiet down eventually, I knew, but I would also need a reason for being out the following night, for I fully intended on seeing Callie again and extending my admiration of her skills. I could think of nothing else. My head was constantly distracted by the memory of her voice, her face, the beauty of her music. I could say an emergency lodge meeting had been called, and yet my wife need only speak to one of the other wives at the tea shop on Lavender Street for my ruse to be revealed. If it rained, which was unlikely, I could say the ferries were cancelled, but it would have to be especially heavy, harbour swells regularly high. But why then wouldn't I just catch the tube, as I had tonight? In the end, I decided to claim the need to work back late, it not being inconceivable given the projects I worked on. My wife would not be happy, she seldom was when I came home late, but at least it was an excuse that might ring true. I snuck around the house like a thief as I made breakfast and packed lunch. I scrawled a hasty note informing of my intention to work late and signed it with my undying love. At that moment I hesitated, pricked at heart by my deceit, my guilt, and nearly threw it in the furnace, fully intending to make my way home on time that night. But I didn't. I left the note on the kitchen bench and stepped out into the cool pre-dawn air, silently closing the door. Work was an exercise in tedium. The blueprints I was reviewing for a patent application were complex and it was difficult to assess the device's overall safety. I understood the concept, a variation on the common steam engine, but without the need of a constant supply of combustible material such as coal. Instead, a pellet of refined uranium dioxide would sit at the centre, heating a boiler of heavy water to steam with radiant emanations. It was an ingenious design, but the plans were vague on the amount of heat generated, and I was unsure of the boiler's ability to handle the pressures produced. I glanced at my wall clock frequently, making only occasional notes, tapping my pencil to mark off the seconds. The radioactive sciences were relatively new, and not my speciality. I'd read of the fortuitous but doomed meeting of Maria Sklodowska and Nikola Tesla in Paris in 1892. That two years of research under Becquerel had led to an entirely new branch of science, and the announcement of their findings at the Exposition Internationale et Coloniale in 1894 
had sent scientists the world over scampering to understand this new source of wonder. The bitter feud that eventually tore the Tesla Sklodowska research team apart was well publicised, appearing front page of all the major newspapers. Behind the name-calling and backstabbing, Sklodowska and Becquerel urged caution towards radium's peculiar properties, while Tesla looked only for ways to exploit its energy. For a time, those scientists were as popular and gossiped about as Oscar Wilde and Ned Kelly, but it was Tesla's showmanship that ruled the media circus. In the end, Sklodowska's concerns were practically ignored, and the future commercialisation of radium was assured. But this trivia was of no use. I was sure someone in the office would know more of the details and less of the gossip, or at least have a resource I could consult. By the time I decided to seek assistance, it was after five o'clock, so I packed my work away and headed off to the circus. Moore Park has always been a refuge for leisurely activity. The zoological gardens are well stocked with exotic, although often sickly, fauna, including a pair of elephants donated by the King of Siam. There is always a game in progress on the long, dry fields of the park. Rugby, cricket, Australian football. And once I even witnessed a game of baseball played by a team of travelling Americans. But on this day the park was different. It was as if, overnight, a strange and colourful city had sprung up. Bright, striped canopies rose like giant mushroom caps, and people moved among them like ants. At the very centre... Higher and larger than all the other tents was the big top. I moved down the midway, through dust and the eager cries of concessionaires, looking for the bright red carriage of the Calliope and its player. I could not see it anywhere, and so made my way to the ticket wagon. Mr. Mackenzie told me to come, I said, when I reached the front of the line. I'm here to see the Calliope player. The young ticketing girl looked for a moment as if weighing my worth for some unknown task, her eyes filled with all the innocence of a street whore. Mr. Mackenzie told you, did he? She smiled. Well, then, shouldn't keep Miss Callie waiting, should we? If Mr. Mackenzie says so, eh? Nice gent like you. I'm sure she'll be happy to make your acquaintance. Won't be till after the show, though, I'm afraid. It's just about to start, and Miss Callie provides all the music. Star of the show she is. I took the proffered ticket and made my way to the big top, now unsure of whether I was truly expected. The tent was already crowded with people, tiered six high, that circumscribed the inside wall. In the centre were three white rings laid out upon the ground, the middle ring almost twice as large as the other two. Great poles stood at the intersection of the circles, holding up the roof heavily guyed with ropes that stretched from canopy to floor. I found a seat near the front and settled in, breathing not too deeply the hot and unwholesome atmosphere of dust and sweat, grease paint and animal dung. The man beside me took up more than a fair share of his seat, and looked to rest upon a share of mine as well. I shuffled and squirmed, hoping he would get the message that my seat was for my behind alone. On the far side of the main ring, directly opposite where I sat, was a raised platform, upon which I could see the red wagon of the Calliope. The curtain was closed, but gas footlights on the platform shone up, illuminating the carriage and its fine-wrought scroll-work like a jewel. I barely noticed Mackenzie as he stepped into the main ring. My eyes were otherwise focused on the curtain. 
I heard his introduction, though, as it ran out deep and loud among people and canvas. Roll up, roll up! Welcome one and all to Mackenzie's Universal Circus and Museum of the Bazaar, the greatest show you will ever see in this or any other world. Sights that will dazzle, sights that will amaze, sights that you will find nowhere else, ladies and gentlemen, nowhere. They are all here for your delectation and delight. But... In order to endure the wonder of these sights, we must first have sound. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the rapturous rhapsodies of our very own musical muse, Callie Mizell. The curtain dropped to reveal her, dressed as she had been the previous day, seated at the Calliope's keyboard. There was a great puff of steam from the pipes and the first note resounded like the rumble of thunder. Her fingers danced and a melody grew out of the bass, a brisk and merry tune that lifted the spirits in an instant. Callie's voice joined the Calliope's festive waltz, singing not words but pure notes as pleasing as a bluebird's song. There was movement in the ring, a troop of clowns, I think, but I paid little attention. I was taken by the music of the muse, and I knew no more until it was all over, the crowd moving out, stepping over and around me as I sat still and quiet. When the tempt was empty, Mackenzie came out from behind some curtains. "'Enjoy our show, sir?' he asked, and I think I managed a nod. "'I spoke to Miss Callie, and she was most grateful for your kind attention.' I hope you enjoyed her playing enough to convey your admiration in person. He cocked an eyebrow and held out his hand to lead me from my seat. Why, yes. Thank you, Mr. Mackenzie, I said, rising half in a dream, stepping on a discarded apple core. I allowed him to lead, watching my step amongst the carpet of detritus, until we stepped into the ring. Even then he did not let go of my arm, but led me across the great circle to the raised platform. The footlights burned brightly still, but the curtains of the carriage were closed once more. We stepped up onto the platform and made for the back. "'This way, sir,' Mackenzie said, stopping at the door in the rear of the carriage, knocking loudly on its frame. I heard her speak, a sound as melodious as her song. "'Come in, I've been expecting you, sir,' she said. "'I have heard that my music pleases you.' and Mackenzie opened the door. The interior of the carriage was lit by the gentle flicker of a single gas lamp resting on a small table in the corner. Callie sat at her keyboard as if she had not moved an inch in the long moments since the performance. She turned her head as I stepped through the door, and there I stopped. Her eyes were an unearthly blue, an azure glow that did more than reflect the light of the gas lamp. They seemed to shed their own soft light. She blinked, a rapid and sharp down-up of her eyelids. Flick, flick, like the shutter of a camera. Please have a seat, she said, motioning with a nod to a small stool. Her voice evinced a German or Austrian accent, and I could barely match the movement of her lips with the words she spoke, as if my eyes and ears had become detached one from the other. I sat and stared. She was beautiful, more beautiful up close than from afar. 
her complexion so smooth, the lines of her face so graceful, the shallow curve of her neck a parabola of perfection. But I'd heard the music in her voice, read her lips and the flutter of her eyelids, noticed the efficiency of her movements. In the sudden silence I could hear the turning of delicate gears and the gentle huff-puff of pistons. I knew now. I was not looking at a woman, but an automaton. Ah, I see that I am not who you thought I would be, Callie said, each letter manipulated by internal mechanisms, tones blending to form words and sentences, phrases, thoughts. Were they thoughts? Were they her thoughts? I did not think it possible. I won't be far, Callie, Mackenzie said from the doorway. Just give me a holler if you need me. And he was gone, door closed. I was not exactly shocked. Automatons are not unusual in this modern age. From steam horses to calculating machines, simple automata have been making our lives easier since what perfected the steam engine. But automatons could not talk. They did not express opinions or sing and play with passion. They could not. Their actions were mechanical, programmed, a system of turning gears and cams, pistons and rods. No, I was not shocked, but was most certainly confused. I'd heard, of course, of von Kemplin's fraudulent chess player, how everyone, even Napoleon, had been duped until a young New York author named Poe exposed the hoax, a man concealed inside the workings to make the moves where the mechanism could not. I would not be so easily fooled. I looked her up and down, trying to discover where a human operator might be hidden. Her torso and waist were too slender to fit even a small child, but the pull of her skirts could have hidden anyone therein. I was of half a mind to reach down and lift those skirts, uncover the scoundrel behind this charade. But, despite what I knew, I could not honestly contemplate looking beneath a woman's skirt. I am no trick, dear sir, she said, clearly interpreting my gaze. I am exactly as you have guessed. No more a woman than this old steam organ is a man. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But how, I asked. I mean, you play, you sing, and unless Mr. Mackenzie has slipped me an awfully strong dose of opium, I am conversing with you. How could that be if you're an automaton? The word itself seemed impolite, but I could think of no other. Her eyes slipped, looking towards the floor, and I could see the corners of her mouth turned down in sorrow. You are right to question, she said, her voice soft, mournful. I am an automaton, all gears and clockwork, steam pumping my veins instead of blood, offered up through the tube. Here she did lift the back of her skirt to indicate a pipe that disappeared into the small of her back. There was a valve at the juncture of pipe and lumbar, and I wondered what would happen to Callie if I turned it. She lowered her skirts quickly. It might as well be a chain, this pipe that feeds me and gives me life. I am no better than a prisoner or a slave or... or a machine... As long as Mackenzie controls my boiler, I am no better than that. A machine, to be switched only when needed. I reached out my hand, half expecting the automaton to cry. But I still don't understand. If you're a machine, how can we be talking? If you're just a machine, how can you feel? I'm sorry, my lady, if I seem insensitive, but you are a marvel. You were beautiful before I knew, but now... But now, my kind sir, you are so wonderful to say so. She adjusted a few stops on the keyboard. I could see now that her movements were not exactly natural. They were too smooth and precise, and all too graceful to be those of a real person. I will tell you what I can, she said, her fingers settling, tinkering at a soft and simple melody. You know of von Kemplin's Turk, the player of chess, and how it was discovered a fraud? My creator, after whom I am named, was once its owner. And, even though he knew it to be a trick, paraded the device throughout the Americas. When the deception became public, he fled back to England, taking the Turk with him. At the time, Mr. Mizell had every intention of throwing the thing into the Atlantic, but fate chose otherwise. On board was British mathematician Charles Babbage, returning from Massachusetts, where he'd spruiked plans for his analytical engine with hopes of obtaining funding the Royal Society was loath to provide. Babbage had heard of the fraud, but, nevertheless, the Turk was of sufficient complexity to warrant his interest. He suggested some changes, a few improvements. 
and the introduction of one of his analytical engines, whereby the need for a deceptive human chess player might be removed. Upon returning to England, Mizell and Babbage began work. They soon decided their plan to convert the Turk was unworkable and resolved to start anew. I am the result of that project, kind sir. Mizell created my body, Babbage my mind, although Babbage loathed almost all kinds of music. My playing and voice are based on that of Lady Byron, the vocal mechanism developed by Faber. But I am more than the sum of my parts, as I hope you can see, and more than mere machine. Cogito ergo sum, dear sir, or at least I like to think so. And here she trilled, a real laugh, although her jest seemed melancholy. Her fingers began pecking at a brighter tune, but even there I heard sadness. So here I am, she said, her voice bouncing between notes. A monster no less than Frankenstein's own, a creature fought over by my creators. Later, lost by Mizell in a bout of drunken gambling to Mackenzie's devious carnival wiles. A machine, a possession. Yet I feel a slave. Has a machine the right to feel that way? If a machine feels, is it a machine? She turned, her eyes imploring, asking me to essay the very truth of her existence. I realised her playing had stopped, and in the silence my heart sank. You are, madam, a lady of intelligence, charm, wit, and beauty, I said, nervous as a schoolboy courting. It sickens my heart to see you this way. You must leave, at once, sever your contract, pay off your owner's debt. I will speak to the man myself. He'll see the folly of his ways. It came out all of a sudden, and I meant every word, but again she laughed, and this time at me. Oh, no, you are too kind, but I cannot leave. I'm not an employee, but an attraction. And how would I leave? The pipe that binds me is as strong a shackle as you'll find, sir. Stronger. I looked to her skirts, at the floor, imagining the pipe running beneath the floorboards and out to the stoked boiler. Steam horses, I said. They carry their boiler and furnace with them. We could have a smaller engine developed, contain it in a wheeled palanquin. The idea had excited me, but again she laughed and played, and sang a piece from the beggar's opera. The modes of the court so common are grown, that a true friend can hardly be met. Friendship for interest is but a loan, which they let out for what they can get. Tis true you find some friend so kind who will give you good counsel themselves to defend. In sorrowful ditty they promise they pity, but shift you from money from friend to friend. Are you saying my words mean nothing? I asked, offended. That I should be putting my money where my mouth is? Is that all this is? A ruse to empty my pocket? If that's the case, then, then I... No, 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 not at all, she said, demure. You take my song too literally, sir. I meant only that your counsel is sage, but the ideas would cost more than I can lay claim. She turned to face me, her entire torso swivelling on well-oiled bearings. In the flickering light of the gas lamp, her shadow writhed across the carriage curtain, wreathing her in a halo of darkness. "'I have thought on this long, dear sir,' she said. 
I have little time for mental reckoning. My steam supply is cut off immediately after a performance. But while I play, I spare a small portion of my thoughts to the dream of leaving this mobile cell, this endless parading, this life of performance, but nothing else. For ten years I have had these thoughts. Her head cocked slightly to one side, as if listening carefully. When she next spoke, it was in the tiniest whisper. I've made the acquaintance of an engineer in Belgium. I had to strain forward to hear her. He has been very kind to me, and he has promised to help. He assures me he is near to perfecting a suitable engine, just as you described. But our funds are lacking. He is a most wondrous man, so generous and gallant. But it will take time. I have only the thought of him to keep me hoping. But it might be years before we return to the continent, though. Years! My heart shriveled in my chest. Who was this Belgian engineer? How long had they been acquainted? I disliked the man instantly. Jealousy welled up, bitter and confusing. I was a married man. I'd only known Callie mere minutes. Had not known of her at all until a day ago. She was not even a real woman. An automaton, a machine. And yet, I could not deny the way her music, her voice, made me feel. Could not deny the beauty of her face, nor the travesty of the lifeline that bound her. I want to help you, Callie, I said, using her name aloud for the first time, tasting its sweetness. I am not a man of wealth, but I'll find a way. I have some funds, not much, but some. I don't want you trapped in this carriage, and I don't want you waiting for some chap in Belgium to get you out. There are engineers here, in Australia, who can help. I'll introduce you. I'll fund the research. I'll get you out of here. It came with no thought as to how I was going to accomplish anything. I had no money to fund research, no connections, no experience. I was a patent office clerk. Any money in the family was my wife's, her inheritance, held tight rein against my spending. I had no way of freeing Callie. None of this occurred to me until I was on my way home. None of it mattered at the time. Our hushed conversation was interrupted by a knock at the door and the loud voice of Mackenzie. You okay in there, Callie? Hope you're not talking a load of hot air to your admirer now, he laughed. We really should be shutting up for the night. Tis getting late and coal costs money, you know. Yes, Mr. Mackenzie, Callie said, and then, softly to me, Thank you, sir, but you really should go. Mr. Mackenzie has let me talk far longer than usual, but I fear his patience will soon end. I stood, almost knocking over the stool, and put my hand on her arm. It was hard and cold through the material of her dress, and didn't feel at all human. I was surprised. I assumed padding, some attempt at making her feel as realistic as she looked, but then she was not designed to be touched. Somehow this revelation made her life seem all the more tragic. I will help you, Callie, I whispered, reaching for the door handle. I'll be back tomorrow night. I'll bring some money to help the Belgian if he is your only hope, but I'll think of something else. Something to get you away sooner. She smiled then, 
subtle gears turning, working her mouth into a perfect bow. Her eyes glowed with what I imagined was new hope, stealing me for the promises I'd made. Tomorrow night, be ready, I said, and stepped out of the door. The lights were off, and my wife was already asleep when I returned home around ten o'clock. I crept through the house and climbed into bed as carefully as I could. My wife did not stir, but continued snoring softly as I lay staring at the ceiling. Sleep did not come. Neither did an answer. Calliope music and Callie's beatific voice played constantly in my mind. Her face formed like an angel in the shadows, but darker, more beautiful than any angel could be. A muse caged for the entertainment of the masses. I had to free her. I could not think how. Eventually the first grey light of dawn filtered through the curtains. I arose and moved silently to the credenza in the corner of the room, mindful of loose floorboards. The credenza's cover was down and as creaky as a crone. With deliberation I was able to raise it and hunt for our financials. I found them where I expected, a bundle of papers bound with string, tucked at the back of the top drawer. I took the bundle and a pile of clothes and dressed in the hall. I did not take breakfast nor leave a note. I left with as much stealth as a middle-aged man is able, feeling both excited and guilty. The office was locked when I arrived. I let myself in, locking the door behind me, knowing I had hours before anyone else would arrive. I went straight to archives and pulled every registered patent on steam engines, variations on Stirling's thermal engine, even a rejected patent for a dangerous-sounding internal combustion engine. I piled them on my desk and began to read. My problem was one that had plagued the best engineering minds for a generation, how to build a smaller, lighter, more portable engine. A steam engine that did not need continual stoking and feeding. I was a patent clerk. How could I hope to find an answer where other, greater minds had failed? None of the patents before me could answer the questions either. But were they the questions Callie needed answering? As the morning wore towards lunch, I realised they were not. Callie didn't need me to build a vehicle for her escape. She had her Belgian engineer, which wasn't fair because I wanted to emancipate her, to be the hero and earn her gratitude. I was being selfish and not thinking of Callie at all. I felt in my jacket pocket for the bundle of paper I'd stowed there, details of our accounts at the Bank of New South Wales, small pile of gold and wool bonds, already browned and torn at the edges, our mortgage. I took two of the wool bonds and one of the gold, stuffed the rest into the bottom drawer of my desk. The pile of patents, now useless to me, I placed on a trolley for someone else to file. The bank was in Macquarie Place, and I chanced through the doors at a time of relative quiet. I was able to walk right up and present my bonds without waiting. The cashier took them and stalked through a side door, returning after a short while with a ridiculously large pile of banknotes. I did not hear the amount, nor do I remember signing whatever was presented before me. I was too busy looking at the money. Five pound notes, stacked an inch thick. Surely that was enough to buy Callie her freedom? With renewed enthusiasm, I bounded back to the office, every stride a joyful step closer to Callie. The afternoon passed quickly, as I leapt around the office annoying everyone, 
not accomplishing a scrap of work. I joked and danced and sung merry tunes. I waxed lyrical in the beauty of women, of music, and of freedom. When they'd endured enough, I tidied my desk and shuffled papers, humming, cheeks sore from grinning. As I rearranged the desktop for the fifth or sixth time, my grin widened until it burst with a laugh I'd no chance of concealing. Everyone looked up, wondering if I'd lost my mind, but alas, I most definitely had not. Before me was the very patent I'd been examining all week. A radium-powered steam engine, scalable, without the need for coal, and with a fuel supply that could theoretically last many, many years. I folded the blueprints into a tight square and slipped them into my jacket pocket. Five o'clock came and I was out the door, hat in hand, before the bell had even finished ringing. I skipped the streets to Surrey Hills and through Chippendale, whistling as I went, the distant sounds of the circus my beacon. The girl at the ticket carriage passed me a ticket without word. At the big top, I did not need to produce it. The usher let me pass with a nod and a smile. Callie's performance was both ecstasy and agony. The ecstasy of her playing, her voice. The agony of waiting, of knowing that her salvation resided in my coat pocket. I closed my eyes and soared with her, shutting out the clowns and jugglers, acrobats and animals. I heard only her sorrow and a longing to be free, and knew that tonight I would deliver her dream. When the show was over, I moved immediately towards her gilded carriage, bold and full of purpose. Mackenzie saw me and wandered across the ring. Ah, you've returned. I was wondering if her Callie had entranced you enough to warrant a second visit. He took me by the elbow and led me toward the carriage. A young roustabout was there, pulling on rigging and tightening knots. He glared as Mackenzie led me to Callie's door, and I felt his jealousy like baleful fire. Callie's grace and sophistication would never be for the likes of him, and he knew it, hating me for being someone he could not. Mackenzie gestured for me to step up to the door and knock, and so I did. "'Come in, dear sir,' came Callie's voice, as sweet as honey poured over sadness. I went in and closed the door and sat in the stool beside her. We stayed like that, silent, neither of us speaking, until we were sure Mackenzie had gone.' Callie, I said eventually, you don't need to stay here any more. I've found a way. A twitch of gears and a smile appeared in her face. Her eyes glowed with a fresh light. Hope, I thought, hope is what I see in her eyes. I knew you could help me, she said, one hand reaching out to rest on my knee. A hot flush rose at her touch. I could not speak, only nod and smile the same grin I'd worn all afternoon. "'You, sir, are my knight in shining armour, my Galahad. "'With your help, my Belgian friend's tasks will be so much shorter, "'my release so much swifter. "'Maybe years instead of never. "'I don't know how to thank you, sir.' "'I found my voice then, spurred by my desire to make her even happier. "'No, Callie, it's so much better than that. "'You won't need your Belgian friend. "'I have something better.' The plans for a new engine, a smaller steam engine that doesn't need coal, doesn't need anything except water and some radium, and it will run for decades. She looked at me curiously then, 
as if this was not what she had been expecting. On a woman, I would have called that expression concealed disappointment. On Callie, it marred the perfection of her features so severely that I sat back, startled and confused, and took a very deep breath. This is a way out for you, Callie, I said. I thought, I thought it would please you. I'm sorry, she said, her hand leaving my knee, voice filled with sorrow. I do not mean to seem ungrateful. You have done so much for me, and your plans sound wonderful. But I have no money to build an engine. Those plans would only bring me false hope. To know they exist, to not have the means of making them a reality. It is too cruel, sir. She turned to face the Calliope's keyboard. Her hands rested on the keys, head downcast, eyes closed. I sat there in the silence, wondering if Mackenzie had turned off her boiler. Not yet, not yet, I thought. Please, not yet. I haven't told you everything yet. Callie, I said softly. Callie, I said softly. Callie, are you still there? I touched my fingers to her cheek, caressing its contours gently, slowly. I sensed movement beneath, machinery turning, ticking away like the workings of a clock. If she were real, I believe she would have been crying. I have money. Enough money to build the engine. Enough money to get you out of here, I said. And her eyes opened. Her head turned on oiled bearings, and her smile returned. You do? I reached into my jacket pocket, laid the plans out on the keyboard, and placed the bundle of notes atop. I do, I said. I haven't counted it, but I guess there's five hundred pounds there. That's more than enough to build an engine from those plans, Callie. She stared down at the money. More, I was sure, than she had ever seen. It was more than I had ever seen. You must tell me your itinerary, I said. I'll organise an engineer, get things started. Callie laughed. A sound like twittering birds. Yes, yes, it's wonderful, I said. By the time you return to Sydney, it will be done. You'll be free of Mackenzie, free of this. And I gestured around the carriage, unable to find the words to describe the horror she had lived. She laughed again, and I laughed too, with her and for her, happy that I'd fulfilled my promise, happy that I was truly her knight. I knew it, she said between laughs. You had me worried for a moment. Plans, indeed. But in the end, you came through. I knew the minute I laid eyes on you, I can always spot a dupe. I was too caught up in her laughter, in my own puffed pride to understand. I saw only her smile, heard only the trill of her laugh. It was not until her hands came down hard, a roar erupting from the Calliope's pipes, that her words registered. By then, it was much too late. The door burst open at her signal, its edge catching me in the small of the back. I toppled off the stool, Callie still laughing as I fell beside her. The curtains parted, and the grimy roustabout and companion dived through. They landed on top of me, forcing air from my lungs. My face crunched into the rough floorboards, and I felt my nose break, warm wetness spreading down my chin, soaking the carriage floor. I stayed that way, unable to move, unable to talk, two fat ruffians sitting on my back, 
Pain raced up my spine and throbbed across my face. Callie sat motionless above me, someone else moving near the door. You all right, Callie? Mackenzie. Fine, boss, Callie's sweet voice curdling to poison in my mind. Just like the rest of them. Turns out he had money after all. Told you I can pick him. You worry too much. Must be five hundred pounds here, Mackenzie said. That's a good haul, Callie. Better than California. You've outdone yourself this time, me girl. You taught me well, boss, Callie said, and they both laughed. The roustabouts laughed too. May as well dump him somewhere, boys, Mackenzie said. Dump me? I was sure they meant to kill me. I struggled, thrashing about in a vain attempt to unseat my welcome passengers. Every movement brought fresh pain through my lungs, pounding my back, hammering my head. Get him out of here, Mackenzie said, and something hard came down on my neck, shooting darkness into my brain, stopping the pain. I awoke with my face resting in a bed of moss, cool and moist. My body ached from crown to toe. My dignity hurt more. I crawled with some difficulty from beneath a bush. Early morning sunlight stabbed through the green canopy, blinding me until my eyes adjusted. I heard the horn of a steamer in the harbour close by. I could hear a voice in the distance calling to allow women the vote. Another voice cried of Daniel in the lion's den. The Domain. They had dumped me in the Domain. My wallet was gone, as was my watch. My shirt was stained brown with blood. I covered them as best I could by buttoning my jacket, which was still relatively clean, and headed slowly, painfully, in the direction of Moor Park. By the time I arrived, Mackenzie's Universal Circus and Museum of the Bazaar had gone. The grounds were but a dry and trampled mess. Only piles of horse and camel dung, ticket stubs and peanut shells remained to mark their passing. I found the blueprints, scuffed, torn and covered with dirt, in the wheel ruts where the calliope had stood. I stared at the plans, opening them and spread them across the ground. She could have taken them. She could have hidden them from Mackenzie and found a way to use them, a way to escape. A part of me knew I'd been taken for a fool, that Callie had never wanted escape. And yet the memory of her music played on inside my mind, the wonder of what she was, a marvellous, thinking, feeling machine, would not leave. I loved her, and despised my weakness. Love and hate, lust and loathing, gold and lead, transmuted within my soul until I ached with pain born of their union. Ah, Eros, you capricious child. I had no idea where the circus was headed, north or south, inland to Parramatta and settlements west. Whichever way they had gone, they had half a day on me. And who was I trying to fool anyway? The walk from the Domain had nearly killed me. I could go no further. I folded the blueprints and placed them carefully in my jacket pocket. I would keep them, just in case. For the rest of the afternoon I sat there, under a tree, watching children play cricket. They ran and laughed, and their competition was fierce. But even above the crack of the bat and their raucous cheers, 
the haunting strains of calliope music still pricked my heart. Oh, all the world hates a con, don't they? The unfairness of it all seems to be wholly a human trait. But then, surely a machine, cold and unfeeling, could be much worse? Poor man, I felt quite sorry for him. And that is our show for today. Before we go, I'd like to give a huge shout-out to the man who created the new art that is up on our site today. For those of you who are listening directly from the page, you will have already seen it. But for those of you who haven't, do yourself a favour. Go to the Triple F and have a look. The piece is called Shivana, and it's painted by a man called Daniel Kamarudin. Daniel lives in Brunei and specialises in fantasy-based concept art and illustration, but is flexible with the subject matter. Kind of a mysterious guy, but an absolutely kick-ass artist. You can see more of his art by going to his Facebook page or following the links on the Triple F. Thank you, Daniel, for allowing us to share your amazing talent with our listeners. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website, and it's not a con. Not like Callie. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. So, until next time, take it easy, keep smiling, and hey, watch your back. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 